Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 430 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and uh, look under the past interviews menu. This whole program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. We, we spend most of our time working on it. And uh, those who wish to support it may do so by clicking on the PayPal button on any page of our site. So my guest today is John Sampson. We first heard from John a few months ago. He said in an email, I'm about 90 years old. I've had both my feet amputated and I've never been happier in my life. And I thought, now that sounds interesting. And Irene thought that sounded interesting too. So um, we inquired a little bit, and um, turns out John has lived a very colorful and adventurous life, which morphed into a fascination with spirituality, which bore fruit. He writes about his journey in this book called The Journey to Metanoia, which we'll be talking about, among other things. I mean, we'll get into you, you telling your own story, John, here in a minute, but you learned to fly airplanes at a fairly early age. With uh, Neil Armstrong, by the way. Oh, that's right. He was in your flight school or something like that? Yeah, right. Yeah. Boy, you could have ended up on the moon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My wife said he went a lot further than I did. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> uh, you did all sorts of things. Just, just give us a quick rundown of some of the. I mean, you became quite an avid and an expert skier. What are some of the other things, adventurous things you did in your younger days? Well, as a kid, I was kind of picked on and a loner and didn't have a good self-image. And uh, I had a terrible first marriage and <laughs> a woman had big psychological problems. So after the divorce, I decided to test myself and try things I was afraid of, like going into the water and all that so I took a scuba diving course, wound up diving in the Cayman Islands on sunken ships and stuff. And uh, I'd always been an airplane nut. When I was 15, I learned to fly out at our local airport before I even learned to drive a car. And then uh, later on in my life, I bought a Luscombe to place airplane. But anyway, I got into skiing and I loved it and did a lot of skiing out in the Rockies and so on. And uh, just enjoyed life, tried all sorts of things. I had uh, successes and failures, and, and uh, it all worked out great. Yeah. And one of the things for which you're actually somewhat famous in certain circles is your car designer phase of your life. In fact, the, 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 the woman who sets up the announcements on Facebook for these interviews I didn't send her a picture of you at first. And she said, well, I couldn't find a picture of John Sampson, just some guy who designed the Thunderbird. <laughs> so <laughs> so she, I said, that's the guy. <laughs> John designed the Ford Thunderbird and the Plymouth Barracuda, which I believe you named, yeah. you named because of your love of scuba diving. And, um, is that fair to say? Were you the, the primary designer of the Thunderbird? Well, we had two designers picked to do the job, and I was uh, to do the front end of the car. The other fellow did the rear end. And we collaborated on the uh, roof and fender line, other things. Did you design any other cars or just the Thunderbird? Oh, and the I, I, worked, I worked at Ford for three years. And then I was hired over at Chrysler Corporation by Virgil Exner and uh, worked on 
DeSoto's, Imperials, and the whole Plymouth line of cars. And when we got into the muscle cars, Road Runners and GTX, all that, uh, that was a lot of fun working on those. Cool. Well, that's neat. Yeah, and there were websites of you, you know, standing around next to these cars and all. It's, it's sort of commemorating your your yeah, contribution. The, the collectors kind of get a lot of fun out of uh, putting me in their magazines and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So let's let's get on to the spiritual stuff. In your bio here, you say that you studied the sciences, mythologies, religions, philosophies, and psychologies to expand your understandings. A pattern of paranormal experiences opened your mind to areas of experience beyond the paradigms of science. In 1970, you embarked on a quest of self-discovery, participating in hundreds of hours of intensive consciousness exploration with such noted researchers as Dr. Gene Houston and Robert Masters, Dr. Lawrence Lachan, Robert Monroe, and others involved in the human potentials movement of the 70s. And uh, actually, that's quite ahead of something that you experienced as a child, which I found interesting. You said that you had terrifying experiences in the realm of geometrical principles. And it kind of reminded me of a couple of experiences I had when I was young. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, they're very was? hard to describe uh, because some, it usually happened when I'd been sleeping and awakened. And then I went to back into sleep, but I would go into a, some kind of trance state. And I was paralyzed, you know, because I, uh, I knew what was coming. And uh, I was in a just terrifying alien kind of universe. It had forms, but they weren't solid. And uh, some of them, you know, were so huge. And I felt so tiny against a planet-sized thing. And uh, there, there was like a, a plane that... Uh, you mean a, a geometric, yeah, it was just a geometric like a, plane of some sort? Yeah, it was two-dimensional plane with no thickness that could just pass right through whatever my body was in that state. I mean, it's just so hard to explain. But it, I took it as very frightening and because I was such a little kid. I had something like that myself, which is why I found this experience interesting. When I when I was a little kid, getting the measles or mumps or, or something, having getting a high fever, I would have this experience of vast... Yeah, vastness yeah. and tininess at the same time, and, al and also right. infinite heaviness and infinite lightness. And some, somehow all four of those things just sort of simultaneous or, or alternating or something. And I would just kind of sit there kind of scared but kind of fascinated and just play with this experience. And I've, I've spoken with others who have, who've had similar things. So it's like somehow the fever was kicking me into some transcendent state yeah, or something. Yeah. Well, there was a uh, feeling tone with my experiences and every time I was aware of that feeling tone, it just terrified me because I, I wasn't in my world anymore, you know. <laughs> so they, they had to throw water on you to get you. So you were really going into some kind of a trance uh, yeah. state. I mean, you were like oh, che yeah. checked out. Yeah. And this happened, uh, oh, dozens of times as, as I grew up. Well, hmm. well I, I should just mention that this also is – a pattern that I see, which is that very often people that have some kind of significant awakening later in life um, have had spiritual experiences or unusual experiences like that as a child. Um, seems like they're kind of ripe to, you know, have some kind of breakthrough in I consciousness see. at some point. Okay, then in my notes, I, I, I note that you had... Um, 
you experienced some UFO sightings? Yes, yes. What, what was uh, that was when I was at Purdue. And the whole thing is kind of weird because uh, it was like in the uh, the fall. Of, I don't know exactly what year. But a friend of mine had a book. He found it, asked, has the Earth been visited by outer space entities? And it totaled about sightings all the way back hundreds of years of UFOs. And first time we had ever heard of it. And we discussed it and so on. And so we came back to school after the summer vacation. And uh, after eating in the cafeteria, we walked out in a beautiful sunset, I mean, blue sky and everything. We're talking about something entirely different. And up in the sky, we're seeing this shiny object floating along over the city of West Lafayette, Indiana. So I asked my friend, and he saw it. And so we we watched it, and uh, it, it just seemed to leisurely cruise along, and it had a like a flattened toy top, and it mm-hmm. was sort of cruising along horizontally over the city of West Lafayette. Hmm. Uh, but we, you know, it looked fairly large, uh, and we had a good view of it. And you were a pilot. You knew what a plane looked like. Oh, yeah. Well, we this, were, this wasn't a plane. We were in doing aeronautical engineering at Purdue, and we knew what was what. Was what. <laughs> anyway, it, it took off and went up on a steep angle and went up out of sight at a terrific speed. What I noticed was that it did not turn itself like an airplane to fly into the wind. It just went up at a funny angle and ignored the atmosphere. So that gave me the idea that maybe this is a, a projection uh, rather than a real object, you know, the, uh, like a hologram or something. What do you mean a projection? A projection by whom? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, my pet answer to that is uh, humans maybe 100 years from now that know how to send things back through time and take a look at what's happening in this crazy era. <laughs> maybe. I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that it's actually beings from other planets, <laughs> but who knows? Well, I, but anyway, it's interesting. Did you, did you hear the news yesterday about the Pentagon? No. Uh, oh, yeah, Pentagon the Pentagon releasing a bunch a of... whole right. operation study in it, so... Yeah, and they, they released some video footage on the news and everything. Yeah. yeah, so this has been going... Well, you know, it's it's intriguing. I've always felt that a time would come when that whole topic would crack open yeah, you know? and a lot of a lot of stuff is going to become public knowledge and i mean if we see what's happening right now with the me too movement um and you know the intolerance of sexual harassment oh, yeah. it's an example is an example of how quickly the sort of whole social mentality right. or oh, yeah. know, can yeah. change and something like that could easily happen with with the whole ufo yeah. world well i think a lot of people aren't are kind of ready for it <laughs> you know yeah they are about it. Interesting. Okay. So then you had all kinds of other extraordinary events in your life. Like you were living in this house and all the windows kept mysteriously breaking without anything striking them. The washer and the dryer would start all of a sudden. Um, You know, you're having visions and noises. It sounds like a typical poltergeist situation. Uh, I felt like it had something to do with my uh, mental state because the windows broke on the night that my wife was in the hospital with a, with a new baby. And I felt like, you know, I'd been wanting to get out of the marriage. And I thought, oh, boy, I can't leave now. There's a baby here, you know. And uh, so all night, these windows kept breaking all around the house. And uh, when the insurance people came out, they couldn't figure it out. There was no impact 
places on the glass and all the windows have been put on up and down the street and the houses when they were all built one after the other. Nobody else had any broken windows. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was on a, a long meditation course in Spain one time and, you know, there are hundreds of people meditating hours and hours a day for months on end. And stuff like that would happen all the time. Like whole glass doors oh, would just yeah. shatter all of a sudden or, or you, know, th- you know, cups on the table would yeah. just kind of explode and, and pe- people's watches <laughs> would just break. And, yeah. you know, it's a strange, like, as if the consciousness field of all those people were having an effect I on the so. physical yeah. environment. Okay. And um, I'm just leading you through some of the points that I saw in your book that I found interesting. We're leading up to the big one, which is the whole metanoia thing. But then you went through a stage of what you called self-healing. You healed yourself of mononucleosis and a gallbladder operation, or a gallbladder yeah. situation and so on. And you had some ESP experiences at some stage um, of the game? Well, I... I Maybe I mean, not. I, 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 I took pre-con- uh, pre yeah. Pre premonition <laughs> at times. I never had any imagery that, you know, but uh, I did have premonitions, uh, you know, like I said in there about my father. I was you know, around 1948, I was talking with my mother about possibility of space flight. And my father said, Don't think about that kind of stuff. You'll hurt your mind. And something in me came up, and my finger pointed at him, and I said, you'll see men on the moon in your lifetime. And his eyes got real big. And later on, after he saw the men on the moon, he bragged about it to all his friends. <laughs> he remembered it, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm mentioning some of this stuff just because it shows that all of your life you've been a, a guy that sort of was tuned into something yeah. a little bit beyond the, the ordinary. It's significant. I mean, obviously, these things are not yeah. in and of themselves spiritual awakening, or nor are they like anything one should make a huge fuss about. But it it shows that um, you know you just have the kind of nervous system that was a little bit more multidimensional than than the average, perhaps. And um, you were a good candidate for the spiritual awakening you eventually did undergo. Well, I, I did have a lot of beliefs and prejudices as a youngster. And a lot of this uh, stuff that happened kind of broke through my beliefs and gave me the, gave me the uh, sense of taking a look at everything and not ex- not accepting any answers. I became a skeptic and uh, got my mind open about everything. Yeah. Um, so here's an interesting one. What was this? Omen in, in restaurant restroom, gems among the stones, the clown, the fool, the trickster. And there was a passage I copied from your book, which I could read if you like, and then you could elaborate. Okay. Uh, you said, while dining with my mother in a restaurant, I was startled to see a, a little, you had seen this little man in a restroom or something like that. Uh, talk about that first. Uh, well, the, the first ex, you know, experience of seeing the little man, I had been to a workshop at Gene Houston's, came back very high elated. I had a mystical experience there. So I decided to go out and have a big steak at a restaurant. And while I was driving, I was thinking about the book Uri by Paharik that talked about omens that would show that Iz was watching and guiding. So I, out of a state of fun, I said, no, I want to see some omens if I'm in, in the right direction. And I didn't see anything unusual. So I went in the restaurant and sat there and forgot all about that and put in my order. And then I went into the restroom. And this little man was standing in the center of the restroom, 
and he looked kind of like a circus clown. He, his clothes were big and sloppy, and he had this flat top hat, and his eyes didn't seem to look in the same direction. And and uh, I tried to ignore him, and I went to the sink, and then he dropped this great big hunk of glass next to me and said, "What do you think this is?" You know, and uh, I said, "Well, it looks like a great big piece of glass." You know, he said, "Well, maybe it is." Or he said, "Or it could be a big jewel. You never know." Then I remembered my omen thing, so I looked right at him, and I says, "Okay, thank you." You know, and then he said uh, three times, "Don't listen to what they say. Look for the gems among the stones." And I said, "Thank you. I got it." And I walked out of there, and he looked just as real as anybody. And uh, I'd never had a hallucination like that in my life, but it's hard to believe he was flesh and blood because he was so weird. Interesting. Now I'll read this little passage from your book. He said, sometime later, while dining with my mother in a restaurant, I was startled to see the little man's face in a frame on the wall. I went over to it and studied it. It was his portrait peeking out at me out of one eye, complete with the floppy hat. The old print was of a painting titled The Happy Wanderer. I remembered the song of the same name, I Love to Go A-Wandering, etc. Years later, a search on the Internet uh, brought up some interesting things. I found out that there are archetypes that have popped up many times over the millennia in human art and literature, and according to Jungian analysis in dreams, the clown, the fool, and trickster. According to James Lewis, this archetype tries to bring attention to our or other people's often hidden stupidity, shams, or lies. He is also the unexpected spontaneous idiot aspect of life, which for no reason at all emerges into our carefully arranged life to upset it. Trickster is a shapeshifter and so has the possibility of transformation. The undeveloped idiot side of this symbol may have a type of clear-sightedness due to lacking the complications and contradictions of thinking and intellectual values. It may also be um, creative in a serendipitous sort of way because it um, doesn't seriously hold on to a purpose or idea. Um, oh, actually, that's, that's the end of that quote that I wanted to read. Well, I thought anyway, so. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. <laughs> so now... Let's get on to your metanoia experience. Explain to people what that word means and kind of, you know, set the stage for us in terms of this experience, what led up to it and what it actually was. Well, the uh, term metanoia is ancient Greek. And it, mm -hmm. uh, at least with the uh, humanistic and transpersonal psychology people, they say it means a breakdown of your belief system, and then a regeneration of your your whole belief system, I guess. And so, so it all kind of falls apart and comes right. back together and, again. Yeah, so, and my, in yeah. my case, it was like uh, a real breakdown of my belief in myself and who I was uh, and so on. And uh, uh, everybody would have taken me to the psychologist, you know, say he's, he's got a nervous breakdown going. But some... some what broke it down? Uh, Why did it break? Well, it, it was a whole succession of things. But uh, I had had Jean Houston come to Detroit and gave a program, and I assisted her. And then afterwards, uh, she sent a couple of guys out to my house that were looking for people that were into uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, so... Uh, all of a sudden, I had this, I guess, a revelation. It's, it's really hard to explain it, but it was like 
well, it was after these fellows left, and I meditated. After the, who the left? Fellows that came out. Oh, those guys that came to your house, right? And th- they were kind of weird. And I began to feel like you know something's something is happening, and so I meditated. And for a while, it was like any quiet meditation. And then a voice said, uh, "I will show you anything you want to know." <laughs> so I go, "Okay, what's uh, this world all about that we're in?" And it was not a verbal thing. It wasn't intellectual. It, there was imagery. It's something that my mind can hardly remember. But deep inside, I know what it was telling me. And it's basically that how this world is an illusion and uh, how we are not just part of it. We're in it, but we're not of it and that kind of thing. So that that was something that that started the whole thing. And then I began to feel like there was a house of cards falling apart. And uh, I I didn't feel comfortable at all. And I went into this kind of, I guess, a breakdown, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it. So I wound up in a state where there there was this bad feeling tone. And the world looked like an illusion. I mean, definitely. I, you know, I went outside, and people looked like characters in a movie. And this intelligence was talking with me and said, you found the truth, and the truth has set you free. And I said, well, I like this lifestyle. and I mean, I like this story I'm in. You know, I don't want to be free right now, etc." And it said, well, you can stay as long as you like. Well, I said, I can't live in it if it's illusion, you know, I got to believe it's real. And so for four days, I tried to find a way of staying in the world and making it real, and I couldn't do it. So I finally gave up and I figured I've got to die. And so I took a shower and straightened up the house, left a note, got in bed and said, okay, I'll go. And didn't go. Okay, I'll count down from 20 to zero. When I get to zero, I'll be out of here. I got down to zero, and I'm still here. And I began to panic a little. And I thought, maybe I have to kill the body. And then this intelligence says, no, no, you never have killed the body. Okay. So I, I thought, I give up. I don't know. I can't do anything. And as soon as I did, I lost consciousness. I mean, it's kind of a long story. <laughs> but I went through something like I had read about the bardo in Tibetan Book of the Dead, Jung's description, there was temptations. There were like couples ready to have a baby in different parts of the world. And it was implied that I could get reborn there. And then there were there was kind of scary monsters along the way that I just said, you're illusion, you know, you don't bother me. So I, I eventually saw the light, you know, like the light at the end of the tunnel. And I just kept going to it. And suddenly I woke up, and here I was in bed, and this beautiful light was filling the room, and it was the sunlight coming in in early morning. And the feeling tone was gone. Everything looked real. I was happy as a clam, and I got out and got dressed and went out and looked at the world, and it was just glowing, kind of like a recognition feeling. With I was just, I guess, in bliss, and uh, I couldn't really make any decisions for a while, and I felt like a little newborn puppy. 
<laughs> and it was pretty neat. Nice. Now, of course, this happened what year? Um, 78. So a long time ago, 40, yeah, 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Yeah. And yet, it was a watershed moment for you. You've never been the same since. Oh, no. Right? No. Immediately, there was no fear of death. There was uh, kind of a knowledge of eternal life deep within inside. Uh, And I still knew the world was illusion, but I loved it. It was a marvelous illusion. I mean, it took billions of years to create it. And uh, uh, I I was totally content. I I never have wanted anything more. Uh, And surprisingly, uh, about two and a half years ago, this isn't in my book. uh, After I wrote it, this happened. But I uh, had a realization that I went to the center of being, which was pure love. And this really opened up love in me. I'd I'd never been that big a lover of anything. But afterwards, uh, I just was in love with everything, everybody. And uh, I, I know what the pure love is. And, and I call, I like to call it love. I feel comfortable. So some people could say God is love. Uh, I feel like I'm not that comfortable with that co- idea. No, but at any rate, uh, that has really enhanced my life. I didn't know I could get any ha- happier than I had been, but I am now. All these things that happened to me, I love them. I love my body. I love my stumps, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's neat. Yeah, that's one of the things I found inspiring about you when we first heard from you is, you know, a lot of people could get depressed being quite old and having had their feet amputated and all that stuff. You know, what have I got to live for? But you were, you were kind of living proof that, you know, one can be very happy for no apparent external mm-hmm, reason, right. because, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but obviously there's a source of happiness within that you have constant access to. Yeah, I think it, it's that you've gotten rid of everything you didn't like, and you've accepted everything, no matter what it was like, you know, painful, whatever. And, and so you're happy, because it's when you resist things that you're not happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Byron Katie is most famous for saying that, that she has a book called Loving What Is. And, you know, she he said, if you if you if you argue with reality, you're going to lose every time. But I mean, people might say, well, yeah, but how can you be happy about physical infirmity or, you know, injury or anything like that? I mean, you can't resist it if it happens. I guess it, it has happened. But. How do you manage to be happy in spite of it or in the face of it? Well, it's like it it's like there's two separate realms. There's the realm of my physical body and my personality, and then there's this realm of my real being, you know, which I consider the awareness. So I I see the two separate and I feel pain like crazy at times. And I'd rather not, but it's okay. It doesn't affect my happiness, my well-being. Yeah, which you derive from that realm—excuse me—from that realm of your real yeah, being, as you right. put it. And just so that people can relate to this experience themselves, um, when you say that they're separate, 
um, would you would you say that you can actually find a demarcation between them? Like here's this over here and this over here, or is it really impossible to find a gap? And yet somehow these these simulta- these realms coexist well, simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, it's hard hard to explain intellectually. It's not duality, and I guess the, the term non duality is pretty good because it's not singularity either. <laughs> so yeah, even though. I'm from the timeless realm. I am also connected to this physical uh, space-time realm and this body and personality. And it's neat. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you're in the world but not of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So once this shift happened 40 years ago, aside from the subjective fulfillment that it resulted in, you know, this happiness regardless of circumstances condition. Yeah. Um, did it have any impact on your relative life, on your outer life? Or would people who knew you not have really noticed any change in that? Um, well, that's kind of hard to say. I, at that, the time that this happened, and one of the factors that precipitated the breakdown was that my second wife had been killed in a car crash. And then the Chrysler Corporation, where I worked, had to shut down for four months because of the oil crisis that the OPEC mm-hmm. created. They're in the 70s. And, uh, and the people that were renting my properties were out of work and couldn't pay their rents. And I had a lot of bills piling up. And I had to sell my place, my properties, the house I just designed. And so I went through a lot of loss. And uh, I think that really helped precipitate uh, what happened, although uh, it took two years from my wife's death till this happened. So all, okay, so all these calamities that you just mentioned happened prior to this big uh, yes, metanoia. Yeah. And they, they were what really changed my life because after I got rid of my properties in Detroit area, I went down to Florida and bought a big sailboat and lived on it in Sarasota Bay. And uh, for money, I started trading commodities. I read a book on how to read and technical analysis and all that. You know, having been meditating myself for 50 years and having been doing this show for the last eight uh, and talking to so many different people, I've noticed patterns. Yeah, I'm sure. one One of those patterns is that very often all sorts of difficulties precede a profound spiritual awakening. In fact, my teacher many years once said, when the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of people experience that kind of thing. Like, you know, hell seems to be breaking loose. Things are falling apart, breaking down, can't accomplish anything. You're losing money. You're going bankrupt. You're losing your, your marital status or whatever. And it, it's almost like this huge purgation or, or you know, catharsis or something that is, that is taking place in order for you to have a big breakthrough. All right, so so you went through all that. As we're going along here, John, if you think of things you want to say and I'm not asking the right questions, you just pipe up, you know, because that often happens. I'm not, I can't think of everything. And also people listening, if you wish to submit questions, go to the uh, upcoming interviews page on BatGap and there's a form at the bottom. Okay, so all hell broke loose. You lost all this stuff. 
you had your big breakthrough, I guess, and then you went down to Florida, or was that the right order of yeah, events? Yeah, pretty much so. And you lived on a boat. How did you make a living when you were uh, living I, on I a boat? I got into trading commodities. You know. Oh, commodities. Yeah, you said, and you actually didn't lose your shirt doing no, that? No, I was very cautious, and uh, the first year I did it on paper without really making trades, and I, I showed a profit. So the second year I made small trades, small, uh, I don't forget what you call it. And then uh, I did well. So the third year I started making big, uh, big purchases, <laughs> big trades. And I made like 50,000 the first six months. And uh, then I, then the uh, big companies that were involved in commodities, you know, agriculture and all, they started using computer programs and they started going after the little guys and knocking them out and, and all that. So I gave it up. But I also did uh, design work for a number of companies, you know, as an independent designer. And uh, what else is significant about your path? I mean, the whole Jean Houston thing. Oh, she's yeah. still alive and yep. kicking. I mean, she's doing all kinds of things. I'd, yeah. I'd like to get her on the show. I've, I've uh-huh. emailed her, but she didn't respond. Here's a question. What do you feel? I mean, you mentioned meditation. You mentioned Jean Houston, these various people you studied with. Uh, what things worked best for you? What do you feel was the most impactful or efficacious in bringing about transformation. Uh, I think it was some of the Gene Houston workshops because she was, she named them Brahmanan and said that they were to discover your talents, your uh, abilities and all this and that become better. But she, her ultimate purpose was really to uh, make breakthroughs and awakenings. And so some of her uh, things she put us through we had like many awakenings or uh, mystical experiences and that sort of thing. And yeah, I consider myself kind of the grandma Moses of uh, awakening people because uh, I didn't study under gurus or, or, you know, through the Vedanta system or, you know, anything like that. A lot of people. Well, you do. studied with teachers like yeah. Gene Houston and others. But it wasn't through any of the traditions. Right. She didn't use any of the Eastern techniques or yeah. anything. And she was good friends with Teilhard de Chardin when she was young. Oh, yeah, right. And didn't even know who he was at the time, but she she had this relationship with him. And so, you know, when I talked to you uh, a couple months ago, you said, well, we're going to sell a house in South Carolina and um, buy a a big RV and drive to California. But, But first I have to get my prosthetic feet in order to do that. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. I thought, holy mackerel, this guy doesn't run out of energy. Well, I didn't realize how long it would take to be able to get up on my prosthetic feet without a lot of pain and all. And and uh, our health has deteriorated. And my memory, short-term memory has been going kind of poorly. And so we decided that's not a good idea. And my wife's uh, daughter lives in Long Beach, and uh, she decided we should be in this uh, assisted living place. So all of a sudden, we found ourselves there. But she wants to wants to get us in California near her, and I think that's probably what will happen eventually. So what would you say to people who are listening to this show and who therefore are spiritually inclined and who are kind of concerned about growing older, it depresses them. I mean, there's a guy I interviewed actually named Wayne Weirs who um, 
committed suicide about six months ago or, or four maybe because he had some he had, he had slipped on some rocks and hurt, and hurt some nerve and he was in a lot of pain and and he had this kind of cavalier attitude about being in a body he felt like hey, yeah well i'll just get into a better body that doesn't have this pain so i'm checking out what would you say to people with regard to the the preciousness of a body even a body that's compromised in some way and also there's the whole prospect of growing older I have a second follow-up question to that, but I'll let you answer that one first. Well, I uh, after the metanoia, I just never had any concern about getting older. And the closer I got to 90, the more it became a, an objective. You know, I got to make it to 90. And now that I'm here, maybe I'll make it to 100. I don't know. But there's a uh, paradox in my feelings, I guess, uh, because I, I love life so dearly. I'm so grateful for it everything I've experienced. Uh, and and yet, I can go tomorrow and I don't care. <laughs> because, you know, it's like uh, watching a really good movie and you're enjoying the movie, but if the reel breaks all of a sudden, it, it ends, well, it's okay, we'll go do something else. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Incidentally, I had a, a great aunt whom I, I taught to meditate when she was 91 and she lived to be 107. And uh, at 91, she was still driving around and stuff. And when she was 107, she was she was still bouncing a checkbook and getting all upset wow. about politics and stuff like That's that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's pretty yeah, cool. I, I really, you know, since I love life, I sure urge everybody to get all they can out of life and live as long as you can. If you have obstacles and problems, you know, uh, do what you can to overcome them. You know, because who knows? Who knows if you come back here more than once? <laughs> yeah, I think you do. But nonetheless, yeah. it's a precious opportunity. My attitude is I'm, I'm 68. And like you, I, I could die tomorrow, but I wouldn't mind living till 90, 100, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy life. But I just have the attitude that, all right, well, if this vehicle, you know, that I'm occupying gets sufficiently damaged and broken and stops working, I'll get another vehicle. I mean, that's what some of the the traditions I most respect say. It makes sense to me. But still, I don't think that's our decision to make, really. I mean, sure, maybe there's legitimate cause for euthanasia under certain dire circumstances. But somebody who says, well, I I fell on my butt and I've got nerve pain and I want a better (laughs) body. I I think that's that's a little reckless. I don't think our decisions should be made by our personal mind. Uh, with me, there's a deeper, I call it my will, but a deeper mind or mentality that suddenly comes up and makes a new decision. Uh, just like uh, when I told my father that he'd see men on the moon. And there's been a number of times in my life when that, that would come up. And uh, it was always right. Sometimes it was prophetic and so on. So that's what really makes the decision. Not, not your ego mind, but the deeper mind the deeper mind yeah there's a saying in sanskrit which is um, brahman is the charioteer and brahman being that sort of universal intelligence that's what's really running the show i mean have you felt that since your metanoia that that somehow you're guided not explicitly necessarily it's a subtle voice it's a quiet voice but there's a subtle impulse that you've learned how to 
recognize and cooperate with that ends up moving life in, yes, in yeah. the right direction. I think so. In terms of the people we meet and all kinds yeah, of decisions. I think, I think so. I think also I would like, I should say more about this last revelation because what happened was I was in an awful lot of pain. I had this disease called erythromyalgia for several years and it was in the feet or it was in one foot really to start with. And, uh, so I heard, you know, I tried all the different remedies, you know, all the painkillers and everything. Nothing really helped much. And uh, so I heard about people getting ketamine infusions. Ketamine is an old anesthetic, and they drip it into the bloodstream. And sometimes they put these people in a coma, and for like three days, they drip it into them. And they come out of there, and they're pain-free for like a year or so. And then they have to have boosters. And I heard about a doctor in... Uh, Charleston that was doing ketamine infusion. So I called him, made an appointment. I thought, I'll try this, see if it helps. And I had a four-hour infusion with him, which uh, wasn't enough to help my pain. But as soon as I started going under it, I had this vision like there was a huge globe, kind of like the Earth. And the world we live in normally is on the surface, and that was called the surface world. And I went down in where it was all red, like the magma or whatever inside the earth. But immediately, I, something in me recognized that this is love. This is energy. This is the pure creative energy. And it was like below me was a, a boiling mass of glowing red. It was like fudge boiling, boiling in a pot, only glowing red and Instead of getting the idea that this was hell, like Dante probably did, I knew this was love energy that creates the forms in the universes that people experience or the, or the deity experiences through people or whatever. And so so this, this was really, you know, an important thing to me. You know, a lot of people say, well, maybe it was just the effect of the ketamine. Well, yeah, it, it, it was hallucinogenic. It created some really neat light shows, and I, I liked them for a while. And then I thought, no, I want to go to the center of my being. And all I had to do was say that, and I went right down to the center. And then when I came up out of it, you know, my wife, Tucky, was sitting next to me in the nurse titrating. And I, I, told, I was so high, I told him, everything is love. There's nothing but love. And I knew that with all of my being, uh, you know, whatever we people think is terrible happening on earth, it, it's love at the base of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I was having a conversation about that or something like that with someone the other day, and they were, they were having a hard time seeing how that could be the case because of all the horrible things that happen in the world. Right. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I, you know, can, can see why they would feel that. I mean, you don't want to be glib and say, oh, no, it's all love. Yeah. Just Auschwitz yeah. and all these other things, it's all love. Yeah. It sounds callous. Yeah. Um, but I think if you can zoom out far enough, you, you can appreciate that there is an evolutionary tra trajectory to 
to the universe and that it's i always like to think of it as one big evolution machine oh yeah you know? yeah yeah and per- perhaps that's of enough of a statement that you could springboard off of it and, and elaborate so i don't do all the talking well a metaphor that i've worked out that i kind of like is uh you have a a disc with a movie on it like gone with the wind it's strictly a recording you put this in a machine it projects onto a big tube or whatever, and you're, what, suddenly this movie comes to life, and it's a space-time reality of its own in in your mind as you you know take in the information, and all sorts of bad things happen. You know, the um, Atlanta gets burned, people get killed, all that, uh, and you feel sorry for them, and and maybe the people say, why does God let all this bad stuff happen to us? You know. But all you have to do is turn off the movie, <laughs> and it's done. It's over, and, and it, you know, and it, it didn't really happen. And I think if if God had gone into the Gone with the Wind movie and fixed all the problems and made everything good and happy, it wouldn't have been very interesting. And he'd say, "Why should I watch that movie?" So I think the Earth has our our world has all kinds of bad problems because it makes it interesting. I mean, it sounds callous, I think, but I know what you mean. I have thought the same thought, and um, you know, it might lead some people to say, "Well, is God some kind of sadist or something?" He, you know, gets a kick out of of seeing children starve to death, and you know, finds that interesting. But I mean, I have an answer to that objection. But do you first before I say anything? Yeah, I mean, look at us human beings. We love to go to horror movies. We love to see, you know, chainsaw murders go on. You know. Well, I don't either, but I mean, a lot of people do. And earlier in my life, I did enjoy scary stories and this kind of thing. So I think, you know, know, yeah, the deity does enjoy all this kind of stuff because it's not going to be real. It's not going to be there forever. It's just a temporary Mm -hmm. thing to experience. Yeah. And I think one thing to consider here is it's not like the deity is sitting up on some cloud watching all these dramas from afar. It's like it is this is the deity, everything we're seeing in the, you know, the divine intelligence. Is there anything other than that? It's interacting with itself. Yeah. And so if it didn't if it didn't create universes and space time worlds and all this stuff to go through. It would be kind of boring just sitting there in, in um, bliss of awareness, I think. I think. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's part of us, us. We get bored with happiness. We want action. We want something new to happen, you know, and that's probably the way the deity feels. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess we're anthropomorphizing it a bit, saying this is how it feels. But one way of thinking of it is that if God is omnipresent, then could there be anything other than God? Because if there is, what's that? Well, if, if you look close enough, must be a God, must be that divine intelligence. And so everything is that, obviously interacting with itself, because what else has it got to interact with? And that self-interaction kind of stirs the pot and, and you know, creates this sort of infinite dynamism that gives gives rise to this huge creative explosion of, of the universe. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, people would like to think that God had a plan and knew ahead of time. I don't think so. I think uh, first there was this 
boiling of energies and the forces develop, you know, weakened strong force and electromagnetic. And as they boil and jumbled around, they begin to create harmonic vibrations that became particles that became atoms and on and on. And I think the whole thing was like an experiment. Uh, and let it go. Let's see what evolution does with it. See what kind of things come out of it, you know. Could be, could be. I mean, I, I, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's sort of like in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Karen, Karen Allen asked Harrison Ford, well, what's the plan? And he said, I'm just making this up as I go along. Um, but, but, but there was an overall goal, which is to escape from the Nazis and, and be safe and, and all that stuff. So I think that there's an overall goal to, to the universe, up. which is evolution. You know, yeah, wake up to evolve forms such as yours and mine and billions of others through which more and more of that divine intelligence, which we are, can be, become a living reality, can be expressed uh, sure. in an embodied way. And, and I think there's a lot to the uh, idea in the Vedanta and other philosophies that uh, God is like Leela on a lily pad dreaming all this, you know. And uh, when one dream's mm -hmm. over, then another dream starts, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Another thought to throw into the pot. We're getting kind of philosophical yeah. <laughs> here, but it's fun. I know in your book you have a bunch of chapters in the back where you wax eloquent on different, <laughs> you know, themes uh, like that. Another thought to throw in here regarding the whole thing of God being a sadist because of all the horrible stuff that happens is that if you're going to have a relative world, it seems to me – I'm not sure if there's anywhere around this, that there have to be pairs of opposites. If, if you're going to have hot, there has to be cold. If you're going to have fast, there has to be slow. If you're going to have heavy, there has to be light. By the, and if you're by going the to way, have... By the way, I hate to interrupt you, but this is, this, is, this is one of the things I've thought out a long time ago. There are no opposites. There are only various degrees. Uh, dark is, you know, the lowest degree of light. Yeah. If you look at all these things, up and down, whatever, they're, they're really uh, spectrums, different ends of the spectrum. So they're Perfect. polarities, and it's, it's the polarities that create yeah. the actions in the world and so on, the duality that we need. Yeah. yeah, good point. I mean, it's not like ice is the opposite of steam. They're right. just molecules mm -hmm. vibrating at different rates. Yeah. They, they give you these different qualities. And... Um, but anyway, for there to be diversity mm -hmm. implies, by definition, that there is not going to be sameness. And so if there isn't yeah. going to be sameness, if there's going to be diversity, and if it's going to be infinite diversity, which it appears to be, then, then really all possibilities have to be manifest. And that's going to yeah, include I, some I, stuff I that we that. may not prefer or may not like, but it's, from the bigger picture, it's, it's all part of the, the totality. Oh, the package. that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. You and I should have been sitting around for years by the fireside having these chats. Yeah. Um, so what else can we cover? I can take as much time as you like, but, you know, I'm just kind of winging it here like God uh, <laughs> is <laughs> evolving the universe as it goes. I'm evolving this interview as it goes. Can you think of anything else that you'd like to cover in, in the time we have available? Things that really light your fire. Um. Like in the back of your book, for instance, you have a bunch of chapters a look at about things. <laughs> uh, would it be of interest to you to discuss any of those? You know, these con these essays you wrote? Or, or would it be too speculative? You have the illusion of reality, the reality of illusion, holes, thinking, 
ego amote, imagination, imaginary worlds, consciousness and knowing, transformation, perfection. Shall we touch upon any of those themes? And, and incidentally, before while you're thinking about that, here's a guy in London asking a question, a fellow named Dan, who's a friend of mine. He says, do you have any fear of death at all? Uh, I don't think I would feel fear. Right, what if someone I... were to break into your house right now and hold a gun to your head? Do you think you'd feel fear or would you like just be pretty sanguine about it? I think the fear is if you believe you have something really valuable to lose by dying. And I, I wouldn't say that my world and life are, are that valuable. I love them, grateful for them, but there's something that comes and goes. And if it's time to go, okay. And I might add that you've, you've already got something which is more valuable than that which comes and goes. Therefore, the coming and going doesn't have as much... Um, impact as, as it might uh, if you well, thought that's I, all there was. I have a lot of feeling for my epilogue. Yeah. I don't know if you'd want to read that or not um, discuss it or whatever. Sure. Is it something I should actually just read here? Or let me just see here. Epilogue. I mean, you want me to start reading it and, and you comment or do you want to just, uh, do you know what it contains well enough that you can just uh, comment on it? Um, well, I think in order to comment, it, it has to be read or to re- <laughs> All right, I'll start reading, and you interrupt me if you'd like to comment, okay? So, um, while flying across the country, I usually get a window seat, where I spend a lot of time watching the Earth below. From 30,000 feet, humans are invisible, except through strong magnification, as I once watched one-cell creatures through my microscope. But the evidence of human presence is everywhere. The patchwork quilts of farms, large lakes created by dammed rivers, cities, ever spreading their tentacles outward. Spiderwebs of roads and highways, and the many crop circles dotting arid lands, their irrigation pumps sucking up the groundwater. Across the United States, as over most lands, I see many plumes of chemical smoke rising up thousands of feet to finally merge with the global layer of haze, pollution, and gases that are trapping more and more solar heat into the Earth's atmosphere. It is difficult not to see our Earth as being infected by a powerful virus, ever-growing and consuming the resources of its host. Great oxygen-producing forests are being fed into paper mills to be made into our magazines and toilet papers and eventually to be consumed and converted into carbon dioxide, as are the great deposits of oil, coal, and methane gas laid down over millions of years, not to be replenished in humanity's lifetime. Thousands of life species becoming obsolete as the pandemic spreads across the planet. A great extinction is happening now. Forty years ago, that poetic anthropologist, Lauren Isley, wrote The Invisible Pyramid, in which he told of a parasite slime mold, mucoroides, found on the floor of many forests worldwide. They are one-celled individuals, too small for us to see without a microscope, who go foraging around consuming nutrients. When there is not enough food left to support their population, the individuals congregate and climb upon each other to form slugs, Then some of the cells change into tall structures. At the top of the towers, some individual cells become parts of a capsule and harden, trapping gases which increase in pressure. Other cells go into hibernation in the capsule, becoming spores. Cells at the top of the capsule become light-sensitive and inform the rest of the tower so that it leans toward the sun. The pressure inside the capsule finally ruptures it, and the spores are fired a considerable distance away, where some of them may eventually awaken and start new colonies. 
Isley saw a parallel between the mold cells and us humans, as our ever-increasing population and economies, dependent on perpetual growth, consume our limited planet. Like the parasitic mold, we are also building gantry towers for spacecraft, and our scientists are searching for places in our solar system or even in the vast space beyond where we might establish colonies. What no one addresses is the fact that only a tiny sample of our population, our spores, would get chosen to leave our planet, while the rest are left to fight over the remaining scraps of food, water, and energy. This is not a doomsday scenario for the future. It is what is happening right now. In the light of this dismal picture, can I still assert that all is well, all is perfect? Let us continue. This overview begs the question, one of the biggest, why? Why are we doing this? Why do we want to infect more worlds? To what end? The scientists cannot answer this. Neither can those who write science fiction novels and movies. This drive behind our human activities is beyond questioning. It may be what some call the life force, the same drive that has populated our planet with countless, countless species of life forms. It may perhaps be part of the mix of incredible forces that evolved the first vibrating energies into atoms, then into galaxies of stars and other phenomena. To us humans, the universe seems anything but friendly. Galaxies are colliding. Well, Shall I keep going, John? Uh, is- I, no, I, you don't have to. This is kind of like a very negative view of what's happening in the world that a lot of humans espouse. And I mentioned, how can I still assert that everything is well? Well, this goes back to the idea of a, a movie that uh, this is an interesting movie that you're watching. And yet, when it's over, all will be well, that kind of thing. And that's the way I feel about it. But I, I also feel like a lot of people that I love this planet and so many creatures on it and everything, and I hate to see so much destruction going on. I suppose it is just part of the evolutionary forces that are going on in the universe. But there's a lot of things humans can do that I think make it a little nicer and a little more friendly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I think it was Einstein who said that you can't really solve problems with the same mentality that created those problems. And uh, it seems to me that if we manage to get to Mars, which Elon Musk is trying to do and others, and we have the same level of consciousness with which we've been living on Earth, we're going to screw up Mars just as badly if, if we manage to establish life there. So, um, you know, Buckminster Fuller, whom I saw speak many years ago at a, at a conference, had the concept of spaceship Earth. And we kind of depend on this spaceship that we're living on. <laughs> and it's the only one we really practically have got. And so if we mess it up badly enough, the Scripps Institute of Oceanography recently released a report in which they said that in their opinion, there was about a 1 in 20 chance now that human life would not exist anymore by the end of this century at the rate we're going with global warming and other things. Now, to my way of thinking, that doesn't mean that you and I won't exist. We won't exist in these bodies, and neither will your great-grandchildren, because this earth will not be hospitable to bodies anymore, at least mammals. But somehow, in my belief, for what it's worth, we carry on. We continue. If necessary, we, we are incarnated at a more, a more suitable place. Well, I, I've always had the feeling, too, that everything is building up to a climax. You know, technology is accelerated. Everything has been accelerating, it seems like. And the weather, the 
what the problems that we're doing with the earth and everything. So it looks like there's a, maybe 50 years from now, there's going to be a, a big climax to all this stuff. And maybe some good stuff will get shook out of it and so on. I don't know what will happen. but uh. Yeah. Well, a lot of ancient cultures have said that that will happen. Back in the 70s, I read a book called um, Prophecies and Predictions, Everyone's Guide to the Coming Changes by someone named Moira Timms. And her, what she did was she took the prophecies of a lot of different ancient cultures from around the world, correlated them with things that have already happened, and, and they correlated quite nicely, and then kind of extrapolated from there the things that they have predicted that haven't yet happened and tried to sort of give it some kind of timeline when these things might happen. But mostly the theme of all of them was sort of great trials and tribulations, cataclysms and so on, which if we pass through that gauntlet, you know, that, that trial, that things will be pretty bright on the other side, but there might be a lot less people around. This may have a parallel with the uh, problems that the humans go through getting prepared for a metanoia and that humanity as a whole may be prepared for a big metanoia. Very good point. Yeah, just like what happened with you. Your whole life was falling apart, and yet yet something wonderful happened. And I'm talking more in this interview than I usually do in most interviews, just to kind of you know make it easier on you and just to keep the conversation going. So please, people listening, don't give me too much flack for this. <laughs> I often get flack for talking too much, but that's just kind of the nature of this one. If we think of there, the possibility of some kind of ideal society, some kind of enlightened world, or however we want to conceive it, um, and then look around at what we've got going in this one, the way things are now, most of the things we see don't really have, they wouldn't really fit in an enlightened world. You know, so many of the technologies and the economic systems and the political systems and the way people are treated oh, yeah, and all these things. Right. So all that's got to change somehow. And those who are attached to those things, who, whose livelihoods depend upon them, who have, you know, certain power that they're enjoying, uh, in, invested in these things, finances invested in these things, might find the rug being pulled out from under them rather abruptly. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I wanted to mentioned that I was I was just thinking about this, but I think you and uh, Irene and Jerry, the people that working with you, are creating a uh, library of spiritual information that is unique, and I think it's going to be available for people to study generations into the future, if we have generations into the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope this will be beneficial for people for a long time to come. I, you know, I, I was emailing with a friend the other day about my legacy, so to speak. And I said, I don't really care if anybody remembers me, you know, Rick Archer, what does, what, what would that accomplish for them or me? Uh, but I, I just have this feeling with my life and I've had it ever since I became a meditation teacher, like, in, you know, almost 50 years ago, that I, I just wanted to contribute as much as possible in terms of the sort of betterment of the world. And a lot of people feel that way with their lives and they have different ways of contributing and I, I honor them and I, I, I love and respect them, but that's kind of been my motivating force. And that was kind of in part a deep part of my motivation. Yeah, I felt that all this. my life wanting to do something for humanity and whatever is behind humanity. And uh, a lot of people find different ways to do it. The, uh, 
the, the, my, you know, my, my second wife was, was a teacher. She taught meditation, taught healing, a lot of different things. And she would study spiritual things really quickly in order to get something to teach. And my feeling was I didn't have to teach. I just wanted to know. I wanted to gather all this information up and then maybe eventually write a book or whatever. So everybody has different ways to express this. And I think what you're doing is really a, a neat thing. Yeah, well, thanks. One of my motivations in starting this was that I knew a lot of people who've been meditating a long time because a lot of them live in this town. And some of them were starting to have metanoia shifts, you know, spiritual, spiritual awakenings. And they, they were very inspired by that. And they would start telling friends and friends would kind of shoot them down. You know, they'd say, well, you don't look like you're any different than you ever were. You know, I mean, their friends had some vision of what an enlightened person is supposed to look like. And so they, they doubted that good old Joe Schmo could have undergone anything <laughs> significant. So I, I thought I'm going to start an interview show where I interview some of these people. And, you know, then their peers, their friends can see that, well, it's happening to more people. Maybe it could happen to me. So I just started as a local thing here. I thought it was going to be a local radio show. And then it kind of blossomed out and took off on the Internet. And it's kind of having that yeah. effect for. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, always felt like an ordinary person. And I think most people always took me for that. You know, I certainly didn't go around with the. Uh, awakening pin on my shoulder or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's neat. Yeah. Well, that's an important one, too. I mean, the subtitle of this show is Interviews with Spiritually Awakening People. Ordinary, excuse me, Ordinary Spiritually Awakening People. And the, the very title of the show, Buddha at the Gas Pump, is meant to imply that ordinary people in ordinary circumstances are having profound spiritual awakenings. And you don't have to be some monk on a mountaintop or something to have this. It's something that's the birthright of every human being. Yes, I went to a, a lecture by the head of the Sufi movement of North America, and he was dressed all in white robes, and he looked like a, a gorgeous guru and all that, and he did a nice program. And I went back and, and talked with him afterward, and uh, I hugged him, and I said, I'm glad you're doing this because then I don't have to. <laughs> What did he say? <laughs> it was, I don't know, something. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was watching a, a Muji interview or uh, video the other day, and, and he, he was all dressed up in white robes. I think it's some special occasion. And there's a lot of devotion around him and everything. And that, to me, is okay. It's it's part of the whole diversity of, of life kind of thing, that th this all has different expressions. And if some people want a more devotional scene, you know, where they can – bow at the feet of a teacher, then let them have that experience. You know, it may not be something they do all their lives, but, you know, it's a phase. Or, maybe. Know, whatever works, do it. <laughs> yeah, no. whatever floats your boat. Right. Okay, well, I don't necessarily need to wrap it up, but this has been a, a good conversation. We've been going on for pretty long now. And... Uh, Obviously, if anybody has had any questions, they can have they can send them in. But maybe it's a little late for that now. I want to just show people your book. This is called Journey to Metanoia, and it kind of follows the pattern of this interview itself, in, in which in the beginning you talk about kind of your your life and all the adventures you went through with airplanes and skiing and, and car design and and all that stuff. But then it gets into the more spiritual stuff. 
you know, your metanoia experience is just explained in quite some beautiful detail in here. So if anyone is interested in reading this, I will have a link to it on your page on bathgap.com. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, I mean, do you ever like just have chats with people? Because a lot oh, of people sure. watch this and, yeah. and they might, you know, somebody might want to just call and oh. talk to you and whatever. How, how would they do that? Uh, I guess get in touch I could with post your email address. Make a, an appointment yeah. or something. Yeah. Okay. So if you like, I'll put your email address on your sure. BatGap page and people can just click on that and get in touch. And have okay. It, have that'd be great. Sure. Good. Well, as they said in Star Trek, you know, <laughs> live long and prosper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's been great. And yeah. uh, really nice talking with you. I wish we could have some more chats yeah. like this. Well, if I ever get to South Carolina, or maybe you get to, if you get to, in fact, the guy who does the video post-production for this show lives in uh, Murals Inlet, South Carolina. It's, it's oh. not, I don't know. I know where, I know where that yeah, is. Yeah, he, live, near, he lives near Myrtle Beach. Yeah, near, near Myrtle Beach. So I'd, I'd love to meet you in person. And if not, it's really been a joy meeting you in this context. And I hope everyone has enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and uh, derives great inspiration from our talk. Well, it sounds good. Yeah, I sure appreciate doing this with you. Thanks, John. Let me make a couple of quick wrap-up points. I've been speaking with John Sampson. He'll, he'll have a page on batgap.com like everyone does, through which you can find out a little bit more about him, click through to Amazon to order his book, You know, get in touch with him if you want to. And um, this is part of an ongoing series of interviews We've had some technical and scheduling glitches, and um, so I'll be doing another one tomorrow, which I don't usually do. That'll be with Joy Sharp. So those who are watching this one live could tune into that if they wish to. Then I'll continue to do them every week until hopefully long after I am John's age. <laughs> God willing. So thanks for listening or watching, everybody. Thank you, John, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>